and there were lives on the line because if if something happened, if we didn't have a good network of communications to coordinate a response, lives would be lost. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there to do That was our job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Michael Armstrong joined the Australian Defence Force in 1998 as an aircraft technician. He went on to serve as a signaller, deploying with two RAR to Timor and with the 2nd Commando Regiment to Afghanistan. He was on the last plane out of Afghanistan in Rotation 20. Throughout his time in the Army, Mike also taught as a hand-to-hand combat instructor, drawing on his martial arts background. He moved to work in cyber before medically discharging Today, he keeps connected with the veteran community through his Voices of Veterans artwork. This is his conversation with Angus Horden. I'm Angus Horden, speaking over Zoom today with Michael Armstrong. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Angus. Uh, Lovely to be here. Mike, where did you grow up? I grew up in a mix of places, uh, started off in Alice Springs, where my parents were teachers, and, uh, and then we moved down to Melbourne, uh, did my, most of my schooling down in Melbourne before heading to Ballarat for the university there, and I did a fine arts degree and then joined the army. What was your childhood like from the perspective of having particular hobbies and interests? Mm, uh, I was a, a martial artist from quite a young age, um, wrestling. Um, and then got into karate. Once I saw the Karate Kid movie, I was like, oh, man, that is way cooler than, than wrestling. And I got, got into to that at a young age and uh, ended up receiving my black belt. And I think I taught my first martial arts class in about 1991, maybe, 91, 92, back then. And I've been teaching it ever since. Absolutely hooked on it. And art was my other passion as a child. My mum, she was always gifting me sketchbooks and pencils and paint sets and taking me to art galleries. And so she encouraged that passion and that passion ended up taking me to art school um, once I finished my year 12. Do you have any military history in your family? Uh, a little bit, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a primary sort of driver in growing up. I had an uncle that had spent some time in the reserves, but I wasn't particularly close to him. And my um, great-grandfather served in World War I, but again, I never met him. Well, I have no recollection of meeting him. I think I was a, a baby at the time. And... Um, and so it wasn't something that was particularly spoken about. But I grew up in a very, uh, I, I grew up in a cult, essentially, which had strong hierarchies. It was an, an Old Testament sort of Jewish um, offshoot. 
um, that had some very strong conservative values. It was post-apocalyptic, doomsday sort of style, sort of belief structures. And in that, there was I was exposed to a lot of biblical military heroes. And through then the martial arts, I was exposed to um, this idea of warriors and service and sacrifice. I guess I had a, um, a fascination with the military because of those sort of upbringings. I had a, a very romanticized vision of what the military life would be about. I'd be surrounded by other warriors, this strong moral organization that I'd be part of. And I think that's what I was sort of hoping for when I when I enlisted. It was quite a romantic idea as a youngster, um, sort of. And um, but I pursued, or throughout my career, looking for those sorts of people and gravitating towards them. So you join in 1998 hmm. the army as aircraft technician. Yeah, it's a uh, <laughs> yeah. I just finished art school, and I realised that I I could paint. I could paint really well, but I had nothing to paint. I had no ideas, like no stories to tell. And my wife, I, again, I was married quite young, and 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 again, that's probably a, a symptom of the the religious upbringing that I had. And my wife got pregnant and I was like, well, I need to get serious about looking after her. I can't, being this um, bum artist is not going to cut the mustard. And my father had always taken me to air shows. He was just absolutely fa fascinated by aircraft. And, and I grew up reading aircraft magazines and aircraft books and watching documentaries with him. And so aircraft was so mixing the military and the aircraft ticked a couple boxes for me. One, like this fascination with this technology. And two, I got to try and engage with this warrior culture. And by the aircraft technician approach sort of was giving me a qualification. And so my plan at that stage was I was going to do six years, get qualified, get out and work for Qantas. They hadn't offshored their their um, maintenance teams at that stage, and so that was that was really what what I was thinking at that stage. This was a way that I could um, get some qualifications that with real world value. What was your memory of nine eleven? I was at um, the Fifth Aviation Regiment at the time when nine eleven happened, and I remember walking in that morning, and everyone was in the brew room. And I walked in there and I saw the, the footage of the aircraft slamming into the tower, a second aircraft, um, just as it happened. And it was, a, it, it was a surreal moment because everyone was like, what, what, are, we, what are we watching? Like, what, it, what just happened here? And, um, and I remember the unit essentially standing to, and we had people on security picket with rifles and ammunition at the at the checking people in into the internal compound we had 24 hours sort of manning of the unit where everyone was sort of like what's happening what's happening uh, are we going to war it was a really quite uncertain time like we knew something was 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 brewing and there was talk of like uh, military units at risk from attack, uh, military bases at risk from attack, and they were trying to figure all that out at the time. Yeah, so it was a it was a very heightened period. If we jump ahead 
to Timor in 2009. You're deployed over there. At that stage, I was thinking about ending my military career. I was a little bit disgruntled with what I was doing. I was mostly teaching unarmed combat, and I really enjoyed that, but I had I couldn't do that as my primary task. Um, and I was employed as a regimental signals officer at 20 STA. I had put in an application for long service leave to go to Brazil with my Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor who's from there. And we we're going to spend three months over there staying with his family and training and traveling and doing all that sort of stuff. And I've submitted the application and the he just laughed at it. He just goes, what are you doing? This is what a stupid idea this is and shredded it. I was so angry and hurt by that sort of reaction to him. And it was completely illegal. He's not allowed to do that. But I'd, I'd made the decision overnight that I was going to discharge from the army the next day and had filled out the forms. The next morning, though, I came down with pneumonia. Oh, and I spent six weeks in bed with pneumonia. And in that time, I sort of stewed on this discharge application. And, and I realized that I'd been in the army at that stage, I think 11 or 12 years, and I'd never deployed anywhere. I'd done all this training and I'd never got to go anywhere. And I was like, I, I can't discharge until I've, I've deployed. And I arrived back at work, and I think the first email on my email inbox was this from my career manager saying, hey, we're looking for someone to go to Timor as a watchkeeper. And I'm like, I have no idea what a watchkeeper does, but I put my hand up for it. And then seven days later, I was in East Timor. I had a fabulous trip. It was when the country was starting to open up. It was the first tour to Timor was running. And, um, and so it was sort of supporting these public outreach sort of programs. And so I spent a lot of time sort of getting around when I wasn't on duty as a watch officer, getting around and, and exploring these different places and meeting the local Timorese people. Because we uh, at that stage, they were starting to relax all the body armor and weapons and things like that. I think we still were armed for some of it, but it was, it was a pretty safe and benign environment. After a couple of months though, because I'd been running a Brazilian jiu-jitsu club in the compound at Camp Phoenix, the CEO of Touraire, like his boys were starting to get bored because they're over there and they're, they're, there wasn't a lot of work for them to do. So he's like, um, we had a Marine contingent arrive and they challenged um, Touraire to a, a grappling tournament. And the CEO was like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do all right. They lost every single match and just got completely humiliated. And so he turned to me and he goes, Mike, I want you to make my boys the toughest boys in the Australian Army. And so he convinced my boss to, to release me from my watchkeeper role, and I essentially became a full-time martial arts instructor for two area. Oh, you're going to hate that, aren't you? Oh, it was just the best trip, yeah. And so I ended up running training for the UN. I ran training for the um, New Zealand armed forces that were over there. I ran training for the Timorese armed forces that were over there, and plus two area. And so I just spent my days just teaching martial arts. And training and and, um, and and training a group of instructors to be instructors. So when they got back to Australia, he had this contingent of 12 highly motivated, highly experienced, highly qualified individuals to continue that training back at the unit back home. And so that was that was like to me was the, the perfect sort of role I got to do that. 
Um, but in the process of that, I healed a lot of injuries. During my apprenticeship, I I'd picked up some knee injuries, some back injuries. And um, while I was over in East Timor, the, the hot weather and the good environment, I was doing a lot of jogging in the Timorese, like around Dili. I'd go for these jogs up into the hills and stuff. And I just loved it. And, and my fitness returned and my health returned. And plus all this martial arts training I was doing, I arrived back at my unit. I was an adjutant of a unit and I bumped into a gentleman who's now a brigadier, um, Doc Watson. And at the time, he was the OC of 126 SIG Squadron at 2 Commander. And he looked at me and he, got, and he had been one of my instructors on my ROBC. And he says, Mike, you need to come to 2 Commander. And I go, well, how do I do that? And he goes, do selection. And um, and that was as much as the conversation as it went. I was like, selection, oh, yeah. And because I'm, I've always been fascinated by hard things, like go, when someone described the ordeal of getting a black belt in karate, I was like, well, I want to do that. And when someone described, um, yeah, anytime I hear like a hardship story, I'm like, oh, man, I wonder what, I wonder how I would go under those circumstances. I want to give that a go. I'm sort of drawn, like I have this fascination with those sorts of ordeals, like, oh, what's it like to go three days without eating? Oh, yeah, I'll give that a go. What's it like to walk across a mountain range? Right, yeah, I want to give that a go. And so when he he spoke to me about what selection is like, I was like, oh, yeah, I've got to give that a go. Came back from East Timor, ready to discharge, done my trip, and, and suddenly I had fire in my belly again. And I was off and racing to the next adventure. It's funny how you are hitting these lows, then suddenly it's like someone passed you a lifesaver and you're refocused and back on task again. How did you go with your, your commando training? Because that's you know very arduous. I invested a lot of energy in preparation and um, I was doing a lot of middle distance and long distance running, trail running, a lot of fitness, um, a lot of martial arts training. And that served me very well until six weeks out from barrier. I had two ribs separated from my sternum doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, BJJ. And and so it meant that the six weeks leading up to um, barrier, I couldn't do a single thing. I, I, could, I didn't do a push-up. I didn't do a heave because I was in so much pain. And I, and I was just sort of was determined that I will – just hold off on everything until barrier and then I hope that I had enough residual fitness that I would do okay at, at barrier and it was enough to get me through and then I um, got put on selection panel and so I had about another couple I think a month or two to then after barrier to then start to prep again and try to get some of my fitness back in preparation for selection selection went well um I, I completed, I mean, like I did selection and started the reinforcement cycle and I was at about day 35. So very early on, about a week earlier, I had had a fall um, doing a night move and bashed my knee to a meniscus. My knee just swelled. For that week, I couldn't bend my knee. And so I sort of gritted my teeth and I hung on. But we were doing different live fire exercises at that stage my injury was starting to hamper and slow me down. And so that I ended up getting a tap on the shoulder and they're like, look, you're, I think you're done. 
this time around, but come back next time, let your knee heal and have another go. But I was 35 at this stage, 35, 36. When I was removed from course, I was the oldest person on course. And there was probably only one or two people older than me at the start of selection. And I just knew at that stage that my body probably didn't have the capacity to go back through and do the year of preparation leading up to selection and the and the wear and tear that that was going to cost me. That realisation really hurt because I had invested a lot of energy, made a lot of sacrifices in my personal life and my work life in order to be ready for that. Fortunately, Doc Watson, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, look, you put your body where your mouth is. You, By all accounts, you were doing really well on selection and I want you to come to the unit. And he put me straight into tag. I took over, took over in tag, and I spent a bit over a year in, in that role. And then we prepped and we deployed to Afghanistan. I had, and so I had a, a as far as trips, uh, sorry, um, postings to to commando go. I was there as a non-qual signals officer, sort of managing the comms within a and the planning within a company wasn't the role that I'd hoped for because I was doing a class A selection to become a shooter. It was still a really good role and wonderful to be part of that community. So in commandos, there's a you get issued your green beret and only the people that have completed the full reinforcement cycle, which is about 12 months. It's a lot of tra- it's a lot of a lot of training. At the end of that, yeah, they get issued that and then they locally they're referred to as they're a shooter. And you've got officers within those ranks and you've got um, privates within the, that group as well. They are the, the core component of two commando. That's where all the firepower is. But then there are support staff and they are referred to as non-quals. And so I didn't wear a green beret. I wore a, a, a navy blue beret, which is for signals core. That's what we wear. But I wore a two commando hat badge rather than a signals hat badge while I was there. As a non-qual, when you're attached to the companies, you're doing all the training that the company does. So you're participating in a lot of shoots, a lot of entry, a lot of different exercises and activities that they're doing. So um, because you're expected to be on site with those shooters and you're expected to keep up and do your role, but at the same time, not necessary you can't be a liability so you need to be able to shoot and protect and be able to participate in those activities whatever the, whatever the role dictates mike can we go on to uh, your afghanistan deployment i went into the towards the back end of rotation 19 to backfill a, someone that was over there and so i got to see the end of that contingent you know the last month or two of that and then um Rotation 20, which was Charlie Company, they came in. And our role at that stage was to to continue training the Afghan personnel that we're partnering with and conduct partnered ops. But also where I was sort of focused on as well was this drawdown of Tarrant So we had to Camp Russell in Tarrant where we were slowly pulling down. And so we knew at the end of our rotation, we're all we're getting on a plane and getting out of there. And so um, conducting these current ops, but at the same time trying to work out what can we start to do without. And so we're drawing down the systems. We're going from a, a headquarters command post sort of structure with all the IT support for that and then going to a smaller one and then a smaller one and a smaller one. And so these step downs all the way down to 
as we're waiting for the plane, what is what is the comms plan for if things go pear shape? What how are we calling and support? How are we coordinating a response on the ground at the time? And and so that was sort of my responsibility um, in that that trip. Plus, I did my, my usual running um, uh, a martial arts club on camp while we're over there as well, which is. This has always been my, one of my passions when I'm overseas to do that. And were there any funny experiences that you recall? Oh, a couple of things. One night there was an op on and they were like, they've come back and they go, the radio's not working anymore. And they bring it in and we're looking at this radio and um, the, the, the radio had taken a, a bullet to it and may have contributed to saving this gentleman from injury. Um but he was more upset that his radio wasn't working <laughs> anymore. And we're like, okay. And then when he found out that there was a bullet in it, he's like, oh, can I keep the radio as a souvenir when I go home? And we're trying to work out how do we sanitize this radio because it's this classified piece of technology. And how big's this radio? It's it's not like oh, we're, we're we're talking like a, 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 a small radio, and it just yeah, bullet entry into that and it hadn't exited from there. So we're like, okay, right, there's there's a round sort of floating around in that radio somewhere. The other one was the the tear down of the messes while we were there. Like um, I learned what the, the the Achilles heel is of special forces soldier is their their mess. We had the best food I've ever had overseas. Like what, where they were getting their supplies from, I have no idea who they were having to bribe to get what we had. But we had like fresh milk and strawberries and raspberries and blueberries every day to go on your cereal or suckling pig on a Sunday afternoon. And we had a, a guy in the camp that was making fresh Afghani bread every day. And, and it was just, it was absolutely fantastic food and then when they said look as part of this drawdown you go we're going to have to close this mess and you're going to have to move to the the, the broader Tarancot American mess and eat out of there the soldiers were like like if you if there was ever going to be a riot of special forces soldiers that was the moment that it was going to happen but once we started eating in that mess I could see why the difference it was just chalk and cheese were very very spoiled in there. Um, with two weeks or three weeks to go, the last sort of few weeks, they shut down that main mess and there was only a handful of us left at this stage, maybe 25 or 30 of us. And so they flew in some ration packs um, from um, AMAB um, and, it, and we're eating these ration packs and we're all getting sick. We're just all run down and, and then we... Someone decided to have a look at the ration packs and we've started asking questions like, why are we getting so sick? They'd been sitting on the side of the tarmac since we first arrived in Afghanistan and been sitting in the heat of AMAB. Um, and we're about six or seven years out of date on top of that. And um, and so when I got to back to AMAB and I had my first fresh real meal, the the the, the the difference in energy levels the moment I did that. And to this day, I've not eaten in a ration pack since. Just the very thought of them make me, make me quite ill. I don't blame you. Good to remember Napoleon who said that an army marches on its stomach. <laughs> so um, I can see why the Special Forces guys invested good time in um, good food. You move on from Second Commando into electronic warfare and you find yourself back in the Middle East, and this time in Iraq, in 2015. Yeah, I ended up being deployed as the senior comms 
guy, the S six for the for the um, the battle group. That was really interesting because I just spent a year in Seven Sig Regiment, Electronic Warfare Regiment, and had been exposed to this side. And again, I, I was recruited into that. I had a phone call while I was in Afghanistan from General Marty White. He wasn't a general then, um, and he. Yeah, he's like, Mike, I want you to, and he was, again, another instructor like Doc Watson on my ROBC, and he had been tracking my career and would bump into each other. And he he called me up and said, I want you to be my operations officer. <laughs> and so I ended up, I'm like, oh, I've never been to Seven Sig Regiment before. I'm very curious. I'd be keen to do it. He said, but, but surely there's someone more experienced with electronic warfare. And he was like, no, you'd be perfect. And so I ended up jumping into that role. And the brand of quirkiness associated with the bear community like i really i could really vibe with i was like oh okay this is this 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 is my tribe you guys are this crazy combination of creativity and technical um which is really quite interesting they, they're very good problem solvers and I, and I really like that about that community and that exposed me to this whole other SIG side of the house, which I had some work with at um, or signals intelligence side of the house, which I had some involvement with at two commando, but now much more extensively at seven SIG regiment. And so heading over there, I was in a position where I had this SIG background, plus I had this tactical comms background. It was a difficult mission because we're lots of different coalition forces. We didn't know the environment and we were arriving on the on the ground with very little equipment. And then as equipment came in, we were then expected to establish all the communications and um, SIGINT networks over there for all the follow-on contingents. And so I think I worked out it was like 11 networks we built um, while we were over there huge distances in very arduous conditions and um, I was in charge of a, a large group of Australian and um, New Zealanders for that role. The environment was really uncertain. We we're picking up all these pieces of intelligence where we knew that there were Chechnyan contractors within our camp. We knew that uh, which had suspected links to Russian government. We knew that there were militia groups within the camp and that our routes to and from the training grounds would pass these militia compounds every day. These organisations had strong links to Iran. We knew of SIGINT collection operations that were, were going on at the time against us. And it was probably the most uneasy I ever felt on any of my deployments because you're sort of like, the, if there was going to be an attack, the attack could come from almost any direction at any time because there were people that had agendas against the coalition forces all around us. Plus, on top of that, the conditions were quite stark and harsh and uncomfortable there, like because they were still establishing the mess and they were still establishing the, the, the quality of the gym. And so all those sort of amenities that you have were still sort of starting to come in. And so as time went on, like some more of those things started to switch on. But when we got there, there was sort of like one little shop on camp, which had a, a range of sort of Iraqi trinkets you could buy or the soft drink you could possibly want, plus the plus a mess that was run by African contractors, but produced reasonable food considering where we were. It was an uneasy space with all sorts of problems trying to work out 
relationships between the Spanish that were on camp with us. And so we had language issues there um, with the Spanish special forces. We had um, American contingents on there and trying to, how do we coordinate in the event that something goes on? How do we coordinate responses? And in, in all our exercises, we failed time and time again because our communications between these different organisations kept breaking down. A lot of my focus was working out how to do that, how to fix that. And because I was my SF background, it was all about the mission and getting the job done and accepting a level of risk and responsibility in the decisions that you make. And I had a lot of autonomy in Two Commando. And Marty White at Seven Sig, he'd given me a lot of autonomy and trust in that environment too. And then I've come into this environment. So I'm sort of making decisions, going to my boss, providing risk recommendations and then getting sign off. And then and then about three quarters of the way through my deployment, some new people appeared at different senior headquarters and they took umbrance to my cavalier approach, I guess you could probably say. And they were like, you don't have the authority to sign off on these things. And then after arguments for about a month, they came back to me and said, do you really need this? Because I think we need to go to the Minister of Defence for signature. And, um, and, and that was when I, I'd, I, um, I made a decision that I'd had enough of working in comms because if that's the level of oversight we need to be able to do things it was just a, a ridiculous absolutely ridiculous so mike it sounds like the bullshit caught up with you again i did yeah so i had both the best and the worst trip of my career the first half or first three quarters was just absolutely fabulous the people i worked with were absolutely brilliant and then suddenly um at the back end of the there was this um screwdriver reached down from all the way back in headquarters jock and they just wanted to know why has this person got a mouse on there why does this person need another keyboard what like like just to me it was just like why are we even having these conversations why are we why are we doing this to ourselves and then and i'm just trying to make make it work over there and they had no idea of the conditions that we were trying to make these things work um, I remember like walking out, you'd walk outside in summer and it was like you had just opened an oven door and you've just hit this blast of heat. So hot, your eyes would hurt. Like the, you, your eyes were burning. You couldn't breathe through your nose because it hurt too much because it was just too hot. And I had guys working out on that running cable and making things happen and we're getting it done and they were worried about Oh, yeah, just it just drove me nuts. We're like we're just trying to do our best to get this to happen, and there were lives on the line because if if something happened, if we didn't have a good network of communications to coordinate a response, lives would be lost. To me, that was the most important thing. Was like, how do we prevent that? Yeah, I was proud of the work that we did over there. Like the 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 people that the team that we had together, what we were able to achieve in that amount of time, like 11 networks we built and across extraordinary dis distances under the most arduous of conditions in this environment of uncertainty. And then to top it all off, we didn't know when we we're coming home. We hit, it was meant to be a six month deployment. I think it was almost nine months before we walked out of there because the Iraqi government was playing political games with the the visas that were we were applying for 
And so they made the decision that no one is going home until all the visas are available for the next contingent to come in in one foul swoop. And so I had staff that were like, well, when am I get where when when are we leaving? And I'm like, I don't know. And so try again, again, like this, this what what a challenging command position to be in to try to maintain morale and enthusiasm and work and and keep people going when they're starting to fatigue. And um, we're now in the wet of um, Entaji and it just turns to mud. I was pretty burnt out. You leave Iraq and come back home. Is that when you then moved into your cybersecurity role here? Very interested in cyber, cyber, full stop. And so I'd been, I'd asked to do long-term schooling, enrolled me in a systems engineering, and I reached out to the gentleman, and he was my, happened to be my first OC. I reached out to the gentleman that was in charge of managing that, and I said, hey, I'd really rather do a cyber course and the systems engineering, are you happy to sponsor me through that? And they said, yes. So I I got back and then a short time later, only a few weeks later, I was on task, enrolled at doing a master's of cybersecurity at ADFA. It was absolutely fabulous. I picked cybersecurity because it was the most technical course. And I was like, I don't want to do another managerial course. Like I felt like I, I, I actually wanted to understand the nuts and bolts of what it was that I was going to be involved in and so I picked the most technical subjects and the most technical stream and got stuck into that it really was a fire hose I had to really work hard to keep on top of the material because I had not been particularly technical at that stage I was immediately posted to ASD I was a a uniformed member within one of the offensive organizations within ASD. It was a newly formed organization. Its task was to support military operations with cyber, whatever that meant. And we didn't really know what that meant at that stage. And so the organization was responsible for developing and being prepared to deliver those tasks and support of military operations. And I really enjoyed that challenge. We did quite a bit of technical, more technical training, which I, by that stage I had a, a real love for. And so I spent probably my first year doing a lot of training. And then my second year getting involved in a lot of operations and operation planning and exercises, coalition exercises, spending a lot of time in the US. And in my third year, I spent um, a lot of time working with various working groups that were trying to to develop the workforce plan for how do we create cyber a cyber workforce for defense i was very interested in the planning and coordination of cyber effects and what what does that actually look like because there was no doctrine developed for how to do it and so i delved deep into a lot of different doctrine sets that already existed and then started to develop my own view of what planning and delivering and coordinating cyber fires, for want of a better term, would look like. And then what are the sorts of effects that we would want available as a military force in generic terms? Like how can we have the correct language to be able to describe to technical individuals that then have to engineer those responses? And then also informing the the planners, like, what are the risks associated with this sorts of fires? So, Mike, after that, as you say, you discharged in uh, 2022, so just recently. What have you been doing since? Well, in 2017, I started to have some 
health symptoms. I haven't had a, a day without chronic pain since 2017. I have headaches every day and then I was having very regular migraines. Plus over the next year or so, I was having terrible stomach upsets. I was having what I later found out to be panic attacks. I didn't know what they were at the time. My hands were always shaking. I was having problems with my vision. I was having auditory exclusion. I couldn't see some days other than just blurs. It was like I was underwater without goggles and trying to look at the world. And, and so I was trying to function at work through all this. In the background, I was going to different medical professionals trying to figure out what's going on. It wasn't until towards the end of 2020, I'd given up on all the medical experts that I'd been sent to in the military. And I'd been sent to neurologists and gastroenterologists, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, professors up in Sydney and all these different people. And then a friend of mine, she's like, ah, oh, she works. We served together about a decade beforehand. And she introduced me to this pain specialist, this neurologist professor up in Sydney that she worked with. And so he agreed to, to see me. And I spoke to my, my military doctor and he was like, yeah, you can do it, but we're not paying for it. And I ended up spending uh, about a month back and forth with him in various appointments. And at the end of it, he, his report, he came back and he goes, um, I think you've got PTSD. You're definitely on the wrong medication. You're going to die if we don't change that. And um, I think you need to go to a psychiatric institution for PTSD assessment and treatment. That came quite out of the blue for me. I'd been in denial about PTSD as even being an option on the table for me. I didn't see my experiences in the military as being enough to warrant a PTSD diagnosis. I'd never been in the back of a vehicle and blown up. I, I was, was never in a, in a firefight and had my friend beside me killed. And so, the, which in my head was like, that's, that's what PTSD is. Like you have those terrible, terrible traumatic experiences. And so I was quite in denial when I, like, I think four days later, I was in a psychiatric institution. I took that letter to my GP in army and he immediately actioned it. So he was very, once he had that, some direction, because he was quite lost himself about what to do with me. Once he had that direction, I was in hospital within less than a week. And I think it was about 72 hours of, I didn't believe that I should be there. I was like, everyone else is crazy except me. I'm fine. I just need to get back to work. But after 72 hours of discussing, because you do a lot of, it's educational, your first trip there. It's a lot of education about what PTSD is, what are the symptoms, why it's happening, what's going on in your body. And everything they were telling me, I recognized in my body time and time again. And I was like, I think I've got PTSD. Oh, shit. That was the realization I, I finally sort of accepted and then it was a matter of, okay, what do, I, what do I need to do to be able to deal with this? To answer your question, what have I been doing? That's what I've been doing for the last couple of years is coming to terms with that diagnosis and learning to live and try to function again. I'm so sorry, especially for you from your earlier perspective of following this warrior cult of, as you say, it's not something you would have expected to have happened to you because you hadn't lost a leg sort of thing. So how do you survive now? I mean, how do you have income to live? I was medically discharged 
as a result of the PTSD diagnosis early last year. And so that provides me with a pension or a pension. Yeah, good. Yeah, I have a class A pension, which allows me to sort of pay my rent yeah. and get around. I'm still supporting a, a daughter. But it gives me the freedom to engage in what I do best, which is the art and the martial arts. Since 2017, I've been running a studio in Canberra, an art studio. And in that time, I, I, I just started having veterans come to me just through networks and friends. And, and so they'd come to the studio and I'd work with them and I'd mentor them and help them on their own art journey. When my vision was particularly bad, and I just couldn't see. I remember walking out of the studio one day and I should have had the painting in here with me to show you. I was working on this painting and I just got to the point where I was like, I can't see. I can't see what I'm doing. And I can't even, I'm looking at the colours and I couldn't tell you what the colour was that I was trying to make. My brain was not working enough to me, for me to be able to tell the difference between red and blue. And I was absolutely heartbroken and I shut my studio door and walked out. And then after about three months of not even looking at, thinking about stepping back in now, I was starting to go a little stir crazy, not being able to create. And I had a camera that I bought a few years earlier for taking reference photos and photos of my artwork and for, um, for archiving purposes. And it was a pretty good camera. I had a friend of mine, she was a veteran as well, and she was also a life model and a friend, and she'd posed for me a few times. And I said, hey, Sarah, will you pose so I can take photos? I said, but I don't know anything about taking photos of people. So I'm really just, I'd just like to book you in every week, maybe once or twice, and I'll just take some photos and I'll learn how to take them and, and hopefully we can do a good job. And each week I was taking these photos and, and I literally could not see what I was taking the photo of. Like, like if I looked at the back of the camera, I couldn't see well enough to be able to see whether the photo was any good or not. I couldn't have told you if it was in focus. I just couldn't see well enough. So I had a very technical approach to taking photographs. And so I, I for that year, I would just set a challenge and like, all right, I'm going to take photographs and I'm just going to light it with a can single candle or I'm going to light it or I'm going to play with texture, or I'm going to play with material, or I'm going to do these things. And then I'd get home and I'd throw them on the computer, and I'm like, once they're blown up, I'm like, oh, I can see that. Oh, that's not too bad. And I started producing photos that were pretty good. And I was working with more and more veterans, started coming out and going, can you take photos of me? I started working with materials as a way of helping people connect with their experiences so like if i was to pull out a camera and say hey stand in front of me and i'm going to take your photo everyone freezes up it's a, it's a really natural response what i found was like if i give them something to do something tactile they can touch and play with whether that's oil on the skin whether that's powder whether that's paint whether that's material whether that and i give this thing to them and they're able to connect with their bodies in a really natural way and so I evolved this practice over a year or two playing this way. And so when I was in hospital for the first time and someone asked me, how would you describe your experience of living with PTSD? And I said, it's like being swallowed in molasses. It's this dark, sticky, 
enveloping mess. Everything I touch gets stained from it. It slows me down. It drags me down. It's like my brain is full of molasses. I can't think. I can't move. Everything is harder. A friend of mine heard that story and said, I'd like to do a molasses shoot with you. I want to, I want to do that. And I was like, oh, sure. Okay, let's do it. And so we did the shoot. My plan for the photos was like my plan for all the other photos was to nothing. Like they were just for me. He was horrified at the idea that no one would ever see them. And he had shared them with his family and his mum loved them. And his mum approached me. He was like, Mike, you can't just let these photos sit on your computer. You've got to do something with them. And I'd posted a couple on Instagram. And the next thing I know, I had another person say, hey, can I come and pose for you? And then another person and then another person and another person. And what I realized, I'd created this ritual where I allow these people to come in and share something that they've never shared with anyone else. This moment of absolute vulnerability and exposure where they share what it's like to live with PTSD, that the sensation of it, using molasses as this metaphor for that experience. And everyone, the moment they touch the, the molasses, they have this eyes wide open moment where they just, whoa, this is it. This is what it feels like. And it's because we've sort of, in our conversations leading up to the shoot, we've imbued the molasses with this power. We've created this ritual where, where they were able to go through the process of sitting with that experience of their condition and then they wash it all away and they're free from it. And they stand there looking at this pile of molasses at their feet and they feel reborn. And these people were coming out of the shoot time and time again. That was the most amazing experience of my life. And I feel like I haven't felt in years. And Mike, has that led you to the voices of veterans? I started to compile those photographs. I got some backers, the, the Governor General and Mrs Hurley, they became the patrons of the project. And we launched it from Government House last year. And it's travelled to 10 different cities last year, been exhibited to thousands and thousands of people. This year, it'll continue to travel a little bit slower this year because 10 is probably a bit much for me. I burnt myself out a little bit. And later this year, I'll continue shooting molasses shoots with more volunteers. I'm going to be opening that up again because I just, it's such a, a healing, cathartic experience for the participants that if people are interested in getting involved in that and going through that experience and sharing their story, I think it's, it's wonderful. I, I, I think the problem I had with my understanding of what PTSD is was because it had all been what's promulgated in the media. What I have is PTSD that's occurred from a thousand cuts rather than a single traumatic event. I've had dozens of smaller traumatic events that over a period of time have elevated in my nervous system to the point where it's malfunctioning and out of control. That's something that's I didn't even know was possible. And then I have others that have experienced vicarious trauma and I have others that have moral injury and I have other people that are what you would traditionally refer to as like your PTSD injury, their, their friends and colleagues have died in battle next to them. And I have others that were assaulted in defence. And, and so I think that the more we can talk about those experiences, encourage people to go out and talk and seek help, that's the, the goal for what Voices is. So, Mike, it seems you've done full circle here where you started off with your arts and your 
martial arts, and you've come back to that, found your solace and your purpose, and we just want to thank you for giving so much and now continuing to give, and I hope that you help people to heal as you continue to heal yourself. Thank you. Yeah, I when leaving defence was a hard but necessary decision, but my decision to continue serving was an easy one. I enlisted because I believe in service, service to the nation, service to my fellow man. The work that I do through Voices of Veterans and Rogue VJJ, to me, is this is just the next chapter of my service. I'm Angus Horden, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. Our thanks go to Mike for coming on the show. Be sure to check out Voices of Veterans, links in the episode description. In Season 4, I interviewed number 97, Paul Kale. Paul is also a martial arts expert, and his skills were tested in a literal life-and-death scenario when he was in Afghanistan as a shooter with the 2nd Commando Regiment. And then we hit into this open creek line and got hammered by a machine gun and then just made our way over to a flank to sort of get out of that killing ground. Follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, at LOTL Pod on Twitter, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. And find out more about us on our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening, and lest we forget. Thank you.